speaking the truth, blessing your name, raising it high. We believe that you're the all-powerful. We believe that in our darkest times that you will lift us up. You're forever our King of Kings. You're our Lord of Lords. We pray as Eric comes up that you just speak through him this morning and that he, he doesn't just go by what he's practiced this week, what he's written for a sermon, but that you speak something through him that speaks to others in this room. And we bring this all to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Good morning. It's good to see you all. We're going to continue our series called Thanks and Giving. And if you don't know what this whole series is about, this, this premise that we're trying to explore is this. Is we're trying to explore the marriage between our, our gratitude and our generosity. They're, they're closely intertwined. As a matter of fact, I'd say they're almost married together in many biblical sense of what you see. Like generosity is a product of our gratitude. But what you're grateful for, you will give towards. It just happens. You, you will give abundantly, man. I, I, people who've done stuff for me in my life, I want to give back. I want to show thanks in any way I can. In, in the same breath, our, our gratitude is, is quite closely tied to salvation. Our product is a product of salvation. The, the reality is this. Saved people will give thanks. P- people who are saved by the grace of God will choose to praise regardless of what's going on. The reality is we, we struggle with that. One, one of those two things are off. I mean, you can actually look at it and see the spiritual condition of people based off their tithe and their worship, their ability to worship. When we look at those metrics in the church, not to say, well, how well are we doing financially or anything like that, but, but if there's a problem with our tithes and our giving to the church, then there's probably often something tied back to well, what's going inside our heart. And the reality is it's not about how much is given. It's more about how many people are giving. If only 10% of our church or 20% of our church is actively engaging in the giving of the church, that means 80% of the people are struggling with something in their heart that says, I can't let go of this right here. I can't give back in praise. Or the same when it comes to worship. When we come to worship services and people have trouble expressing their worship, engaging in worship, or even just coming, there's something off. It's like a thermometer. You can look at it and say, well, something is not reading right. There's a symptom going on. I mean, it's just the truth. You will cheer for and give to what you are passionate about. And if you struggle with one of those two things, there is something about the Lord in your life that you're not passionate about. I don't speak this out of arrogance or like I've got my act together. I speak as someone who struggles with the same thing, so I'm speaking to the, preaching to the choir very much so here. And so today with the opening question, just to kind of set up for today's topic, I want to ask this. It's kind of in my wheelhouse here, but what aspect of your life do you complain about the most? What is that? Real quick. Take a second with the people you're around next to you, if you're being honest. If you don't know, maybe answer this question. What, who would, what would others say about you? What, what aspect of your life do other people say? Yeah, they probably say, I complain the most about this right here. So take a second. Don't look at me. Look at the person next to you. Look at someone around you if you're by yourself and answer that question as honestly as you can. People would probably say, I complain about this the most in my life. And we'll jump back in together in just a second.
I don't know if this hits home to anybody in the crowd out here, if this is any of you guys right here. Uh, I wish I had the optimism of my brother Pete over here. I mean, every situation you got, he can find a smile on his face. If I were to start to air out my grievances here, we would be here all day. And I know you guys want to have lunch, so I won't get into my pessimism in my life that I can find. The re- reality for many of us is this. It's hard to be thankful when the difficulties of life keep coming, isn't it? It's hard to be grateful when just one wave after another after another seems to come in your life. I mean, can, can anybody in here be a witness with me on how hard has 2020 and 2021 been, right? I mean, I, I love when people come and say, man, I loved being on lockdowns. I got to spend more time with my family. I love my family, but homeschool was difficult. I don't know how you people at homeschool do it. Like, we were like, man, this is hard. How do we juggle work in this? How do we make it through these seasons? How do you constantly be optimistic when you just can't think left and like, man, everything constantly changes on you? It's hard to be optimistic, if I'm being honest with it. Or even when your finances, when things are tight in your life, how, how easy is it to give? And to feel that guilt of, I know I should be giving, but I, I'm struggling to pay the bills right now. What do I do? i never forget being at my last church at Chickasha, and uh, times were tight for Emily and I. We didn't make a lot of money, and I remember we struggled with being generous with our giving. And I remember sitting in in a a men's group class, and one of the guys who taught the class was a doctor who did very well for himself, gave us a lecture about how if you don't give, you just don't love the Lord. And his intentions were good, but how I interpreted it was not good. And I'm sitting here in my shoes like, I'm trying to figure out how to make it through the week, make sure our light bill doesn't shut off, and bro here's got a second lake home over there. I'm like, if I had the money you had, it'd be no difficulty for me to give. But my situation right here, you don't understand what I'm going through. Like, like, if you were in my shoes, how, 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 how prideful, how good would you be at talking about how easy it is to give? Like, hush, bro, I don't want to hear a word from you. Problem is, when I read scripture, I see something different, because every time Jesus uses an example of giving, he doesn't use wealthy, he uses poor people. It was the poor widow that came in with nothing but two cents and threw in a plate, and Jesus was like, man, she gave all she had. That is true worship right there. It was a young boy when Jesus says, anybody got anything to give that I can do something with? And the boy says, I got two fish and a loaf of bread. And he gave all he had and what Jesus blessed many. And so I'm convicted, I'm humbled by that. This reality is this, is we're going to ask this question. How can we, how can we be optimi- optimistic when everything seems pessimistic? And again, I, I'm, I, I shouldn't be preaching this sermon right here. I don't need any amens from the crowd on that right there. Last week, I was talking to someone who gave me, gives me a hard time about being a pessimist. And I said, I'm not a pessimist. I was like, I'm just real. And they're like, oh, I've spoken like a true pessimist. I'm like, thank you. You're like, I'm just speaking life like it is. Like, let's just be honest. Let's be real. And part of this sermon, real quick, just to unpack so you don't feel bait and switch, is this is a two-part sermon. We're going to look at Job chapter 1 and 2 at a case study. And then we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians 5 to look at a command or the application. So if you want to start with me in Job chapter 1 and 2, we're going to look at a case study of how you be optimistic in pessimistic situations. And we'll look at 1 Thessalonians 5 to talk about how do we actually do this, some practical application to go home with. And so if you want to start opening your Bibles there, my, my big idea that all that comes to come together is this thing right here. The big idea is this, thanks and giving shouldn't change because God doesn't change. Let me say it again, and hopefully it'll make more sense by the time we're all done. Thanks and giving, your thanks and your giving, your praise and your worship, your giving to God should not change. You know why? Because God doesn't change. Our circumstances have no bearing on it. And I know that's easier said than done, but hopefully we, we can uh, get some truth today. Job chapter 1. If you have it with me, let's just turn there. We'll start in Job chapter 1. Hopefully as you're there, if you don't know, some scholars believe Job was actually probably one of the first books of the Bible actually written. Uh, some people even wrestle and say Job might be an allegory. It might not even be a real person that actually existed. It might be just an allegory to teach a tale or teach a story. 
The reality is there's nothing a scripture tells us otherwise or any illusion, so we have to assume and believe Job was a real person that truly existed, that truly lived, and that God really did what he did in his life. The interesting thing and the strange thing with Job is we get the blessing and privilege to read the narrative, to read the story of his life from the outside, from God's perspective, and see what's going on behind the scene. But as you read, the challenge is to read it from Job's perspective and understand what details he doesn't know. As you read it, and he's like, well, this makes perfect sense, but if you were in Job's shoes and all you're seeing, you can probably identify and witness, like, what's going on? And so as you read this, as we unpack, try to think through that lens. So let's start with Job chapter 1. It said, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children to purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps, maybe one of my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. If you don't know, real quick, Job was blessed. Okay, Job had everything. He had money, he had wealth, he had fame, he had a great big family. As a matter of fact, those numbers, seven and three, in biblical language and biblical terms, were, were numbers of completeness. He had a complete family, he had the complete job, he had everything. He had integrity, he was an upright man. Every day he was a religious, devout person that went and prayed for his people, prayed for his children. Like This is, this is the model picture. If we say, if you want to be blessed, this is what blessed people look like. This is it, by the world's standards. He's done everything you've seen right. He's got the great family. He's the family that you look up to but frustrates you too because you know you can never be that, right? Let's keep reading. It says, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? He said, from roaming through the earth. And Satan answered him, walking around on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have, have you considered my servant Job? Like no one on earth is like him. A man of perfect, per, uh, perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, <laughs> Job feared God for nothing? I mean, haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased his land. But stretch out your hand and strike out everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. You have an interesting situation. I wish we had more time to unpack of questions that raise up. Who are these sons of God that come up? And how in the world is Satan just able to walk into the presence of God and chat with him? That's another sermon for another day I'd love to chat with you about. But for time's sake, we can't get into that. But what's interesting is Satan comes to him and God begins to ask him. God knows what's going on. Hey, what have you been up to? He's like, man, I'm just trying to stir up the world, do whatever I can, and God gives Job's name. Job doesn't know this. God gives Job's name. Like, have you checked out my bro Job? Like, this dude's got it together. Now, now God calls out something that me and you, or, Job, or Satan calls out something me and you would probably feel in our heart. Yeah, how hard would it be for someone to love you if you gave them literally everything they ever wanted? I mean, this guy's got everything. If you, if you took away some of his stuff, let's see how quickly he would still, be, let's see if he'd be a fair weather fan or continue to pursue you all the time of his life. Like, it's just because you've given him stuff. 
And I love God gives permission. Understand, Satan can't do anything without God allowing it to happen, and even God's sovereignty reigns across that. And he looks and says, listen, that's fine. You can do it. You can take away everything he has, but don't touch him himself because he's still mine. Like Satan calls out and says, the only reason he loves you is because of stuff. Take away his stuff, and he'll ditch you like a bad habit. So verse 13, it says, one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, so while oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now he was still speaking with another messenger came up and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and drove, devoured them all, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And the messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house like they were accustomed. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. And it collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone escaped to tell you. You want to talk about a bad day. Like imagine sitting there. And suddenly, bam, I've lost this. Bam, I've lost, oh yeah, stock market drop. Oh yeah, you just got fired from your job. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but your house caught on fire while you were out hanging out and stuff. Your car broke down. And guess what? Your kids who were going together in the other car in the movie got in a wreck and all passed away and died. Can you imagine the situation? Job loses everything. Right, let me ask you this. How would you have responded if this was you? If you were sitting there and got this at once, how would your response to God be? Job doesn't know a backstory. Job doesn't know what God has set up. Job doesn't know that God says, man, this is my dude, and I have faith in this person. There is something. He's made of something. Go after him. Job doesn't know this. He's sitting there, and all is gone. How would you have responded? I don't know about you, but I have a pretty good idea of how I respond. It wouldn't be good. I remember when we were ready to have our first child, and Emily got pregnant, and her mother had many issues when it came to children, miscarriages and many things after that. And we were scared and terrified that we might have a chance of losing our kid. And so our pregnancy, her pregnancy, was considered a high-risk pregnancy. And then we were going to the doctor, and they tell us we wouldn't know until these weeks. And I remember counting down the days and the weeks coming up. And I, and I remember having a conversation to God that was so, so just honest and real, but so completely inept and what I understood. And I remember telling God, God, listen, I've, I've done all this stuff for you. I've been faithful to you. And I, I've given up so much to do what you want me to do. But you take away my kid, I'm done. I'm out. I, I, I don't... If, you, if you're going to do this to me, after all I've done for you, now listen, you, you guys might say, hey, there's nothing wrong with it, but it was, it was honest, it was real, but you know what, it was so ignorant in my understanding of who God was and what God does for me. And so how does Job respond? He loses everything. Look at verse 20, it says, then Job stood up, he tore his robe and shaved his head. He, he didn't hate his hair, in case you're wondering, this was a sign of mourning in this culture, is how you showed that you mourned. Many people mourn in a different way, but in this custom and culture, this is how you mourned. It's important to understand that because look what happens next. He mourns in verse, the end of it. He says, he fell to the ground and worshipped. He, he worshipped. Saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And says, throughout all of this, Job did not sin, or, or this is more profound to me, or blame God for anything. If you go back and see it says what fires from heaven, God's fires from heaven came down. People were telling him God did this to you. And he's like, does, he does not sin. What does he do? He worships. He mourns and he worships. 
Like it's important to understand in verse 20, Job does not pretend like hardship does not hit his life. He did not walk around pretending, oh, hunky-dory, all is well. I need to pretend to be happy. He was real. He mourned. He cried. He wept. He was real about the situation. But he still worshiped. It teaches a truth to me. Like worship is not tied to our happiness. It's not tied to our circumstances. Worship is a truth of who God is. True worship understands this. True worship and praise has no contingencies. There's no if, ands, or buts. So no matter what happens in your life, true worship of the Lord God Almighty is, is contingent on nothing. If you're to connect the dots and understand this, if, if our worship and our praise are not circumstantial, then worship services and tithings should not be either. They shouldn't fluctuate on the circumstances of life. If God is constant, our praise, our worship, our attendance, our love for him should never change. Our giving, our generosity should never change. Why? Because God is constant. And what's interesting, am I getting some feedback here? All right. Ooh. Better buckle up. Going to go on for another hour now. You laugh, but no, I'm just kidding. So what happens? He worships the Lord. So through all this, he did not sin. And so luckily, hopefully his, his story's over, but we know that's not true because we know the rest of the story. So look at Job chapter 2. It says, one day the sons of God came, to, uh, came again and present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? He said, from roaming through the earth, Satan answered, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Man, it sounds awfully familiar again, doesn't it? He said, no one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. He's like, you did all your stuff, and what happened? I was right, right? My man Job still with me. And Satan says this. He says, skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. He says, a man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Strike his health and see how quickly he still worships your name and calls you good. In verse 6, God said, very well, the Lord said to Satan. He's in your power. Only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. I won't get into the imagery going on here, but you have a rinse cycle repeat of chapter 1, and Job is in agonizing pain to where the only relief he gets is literally taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping his open source to relieve himself of the pain. Can you imagine this? Scholars talk about him sitting down that his boils would cover every inch of his body. There's nowhere he can stand. There's nowhere he can sit. There's nowhere he can go where he can find relief from his torment and his pain. And what happens? How would you respond? What's going on? Well, let's see what happens next, what Job says, verse 9. It says, his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Like, curse God and die. In this culture and time, they would believe, as much as we believe today, that, listen, if you have all these hardships, you must have done something wrong. There must be some sin in your life because blessed people get stuff. They have health. They have happiness. They have wealth. And if you don't have that stuff, there's something in your life that you're refusing to confess to and deal with. Like, you just need to curse God and die and let it be over. Like, God's obviously punishing you. And I love Job's response. What did he say? He said, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Guys, don't ever say that to your wife. Okay, Job got by with it, but, but I wouldn't encourage that for you. And he told her, he said, should we accept only good from God and not adversity or not bad? And so throughout all this, Job still did not sin in what he said. In other words, he's saying it's not always sunshine and rainbows following the Lord. 
I understand this. As a matter of fact, Scripture would point to the opposite. You, you were never promised comforts or blessing when it comes to worship of the Lord. I mean, let me just give you a few texts to just wrap your mind around sometimes the prosperity gospel that people seem to believe that if I come to church, God will make my life easier and happier, and God will give me all this sort of stuff, and if I don't have that stuff, I need to do more to get more from God. I mean, listen to what James says. James says, my brothers, you will have many kinds of troubles, but when these things happen, you should be very happy. Okay, why? Because you know these things are a testing of your faith, that they develop Christians. John 16, says, in this world, you will have trouble, but be brave because I have defeated the world. First Peter 5, yes, you will suffer. Let me say it again. You will suffer for a short time, but after that, God will make every, everything right. He'll make you strong. He'll support you and keep you from failing. Hardships are almost a promise of Christian's life, not comfort and blessings, at least not in the world's sense of blessings. And sometimes we get so stuck on circumstantial stuff, and it's like, well, well, man, my praise and my worship follows these circumstances in my life. The question we have to really ask is this, is why would God allow hardships in my life? Why would God do this? Why would God lift up Job's name and say, hey, go after my dude Job here? Like, man, like, how cruel is that? I love my kids, but like, you want to see how awesome my kids are? Like, go, like, just make their life miserable, and I'll show you how awesome. Like, how awful of a father is it? Like, why would he do this? The reality is this, is God's greatest visibility is in the hardships of our life. When God is most visible is whenever we deal with dark times. Let me say it like this. I asked Kyle Bond, dude, that bro's got a flashlight. Look at that thing. I've shined your lights, but I promise you I'll blind you, and I kind of want you to see the rest of the service. Like, this thing is powerful, Right? Like, it's powerful. Like, just real quick. Okay, got it there. Well, I'm done. I'm done. One more. Okay, there we are. We're done. I'm sorry. I went with youth on Wednesday night. I got a little bit of that back in my, my blood right now. So, like, this thing is powerful. But the reality is in a lighted room like this, it doesn't have much effect. The efficacy of light comes what? In darkness. Are you guys able to do that? Let's get as dark as we can in here. Look at that. I shine your light, but I think I would blind you for real this time. I won't do it. See, the power of light, your, your eyes can't help but be attracted to it. The power of light comes in darkness. You guys can kick the lights back on. L listen, the reality is this. Why does God allow hardships in our life? Because the brighter we shine is in the darkness situations. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says this. It says, you are the light that gives light to the world. You should be light for other people. Live so they will see good things you do. Live so they will praise your Father in heaven. Listen, God very rarely gets glory in all our blessings, but God gets glory when people who suffer and hurt still continue to worship. There's something that defies logic with that. It's easy to someone who has, see someone who has everything, has been blessed with everything in their life, and go, man, I love the Lord. Like, of course you do. You have everything. You have everything you've ever wanted. You have your health. You have wealth. You have great kids that do everything you want them to do. You have a great job. You have everything you could possibly want. But someone who's been stripped of everything they have and somehow they can still come and sing praise of the Lord, there's something that defies common knowledge and common things with us. We say, how do you do that? Scripture says in all times and all seasons, be ready to give a witness to why you have the hope that you do. John Piper, I love, said it like this. He said, joy in God in the midst of suffering makes the worth of God shine more brightly than it would through our joy than any other time. You see, sunshine, happiness in our life points to the value of sunshine. But happiness and suffering points to the value of God. Suffering and hardships, joyfully accepted by his believers in the path of obedience to Christ, show the supremacy of God more than all our faithfulness on a fair day. Well, listen, there, there, here, understand this. 
If you deal with hardships in your life and you're going through something, there is something on the other side of the script that you can't see where God's like, have you checked out my guy Eric? Like I say, you can go after him, but I believe he's capable of continuing on. I believe there's something he's made of. There's something in his life that I believe that if you put him through this, he's going to shine brighter and he's going to bring more glory to my name than he ever would in the hope and the, and the great things he has. And so the question comes for us is like, well, how do we do this? How do we practice optimism in pessimistic circumstances? Like, how do we keep this uncircumstantial faith and loving God? Turn to 1 Thessalonians. This is where the application is going to come in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. It's a command actually Paul gives at the end of his letter. It's his like last parting advice. You ever had like your kids go out the door and you're saying your last things you want them to remember not to forget? Paul's doing this at the end of his letter. He's throwing out things that are important. Like, don't, please don't forget this. Please don't forget to wear your coat. Please don't forget to, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. Please don't, I don't know, whatever else. But, you know, all that sort of stuff. So Paul's doing that. And look what he says in verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in every wing, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, real quick practical application, look at the first one, be joyful always. You need to understand this, and if you take notes, write this down, joy is a choice, not a reaction. Joy is a choice, not a reaction. Happiness is contingent on feelings, about how you feel. It's okay to feel happy when things are going well. Joy is a choice we make on a day-out, day-out basis. And so the question is, will you choose joy each day? Like, make no mistake, Job wasn't happy. It doesn't mean we have to come and fake and pretend like, I'm happy that I've lost everything. I'm happy that, you know, my loved ones have passed away. I'm happy that I'm going through these. You don't have to fake happiness. You can be honest with God and mourn and hurt, but at the end of the day, still choose joy. At the end of the day, I'm still going to worship name because he's worthy of it. And so he says, be joyful always. Choose joy. The second thing he says is he says, pray continuously or pray continually. Write this down. Prayer is a rhythm, not a formula. Prayer is a rhythm, not a formula. You say, what's the difference? A formula is something you plug in to get a result. In other words, if I'm dealing with hardships in my life, if I pray, if I say this thing, maybe then it will equal this formula that God will give me what I want. It's like people who pray to get out of difficulties. It, it cracks me up, and I do it too, where people come, hey, would you pray with me? I'm going through difficulty, and they're like, I guess it can't hurt. Like, man, we should pray all the time. It's not just in difficulty, but it's in good times as well. It's not a formula I stick in. I'll never forget in my last student ministry, having a parent come, and I'd have this kid come in and out of student ministry all the time. And I was like, so good to see them again. Like, yeah, they're having trouble. We need to get them back in church to fix them so they can go. It's like, what are you teaching your kids here? Our, our prayer is always there. You see, a formula is something we do to get results. A rhythm is something we get into. It's a pattern of life. It's something we just rhythmically do. And so you hear that, you probably say, well, do I literally have to pray all the time? No, no, you don't have to pray all the time. If you do, man, kudos to you. That's not what I'm saying. But the reality is you always keep an attitude of prayer in your heart and your mind. Always keep the Lord on your mind. If, if you don't know what this looks like, then, then go back to the time you had a first crush and think about that. I remember when me and Emily started dating, I thought about her all the time. My car, my 88 Chevy Silverado, I remember I had a picture, a senior picture I put up in my rearview mirror. So every time I looked up, I'd see a picture of that little hottie and remind myself, I'm a lucky man. She might not feel the same way, but I'm a lucky man. 
We'd meet at church on Wednesday nights. I still have a whole box at my house of notes we'd write. Yes, students, I'm that age where we didn't text. We would write notes back and forth to each other. And she would slip me a note at church. And I'd read on Monday in chemistry class. She's like, I'm sitting in chemistry just thinking about you, wondering what you're up to, how's life treating you. I hope I get to see you at Fazoli's tonight because I was the Fazoli's boy rocking it up and stuff. But listen, all throughout the week, we would slip notes back and forth to each other. Why? Because everywhere we went, we were constantly on each other's mind. Did I talk to her nonstop? No. Did I always have conversations? Did I always have the phone on dial everywhere I go? No. But the reality is, is she was always in some way, some fashion, some form on my mind. And same as in the Lord. That's what pray continuously means. It means every aspect you walk, how can you continuously find ways to keep the Lord on your mind? Hey, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for not letting me drive like a fool and cuss these people out as they drive by as I get angry at them because I, I have the propensity to do that. Thank you, Lord, for this moment with my kids. Thank you that my daughter sneezed and didn't blow snot on me. Whatever it is, you know, like, I mean, whatever you find to praise the Lord, man, find time to talk to the Lord. It just says, pray, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks. Uh, and then the last one is give thanks in all circumstances. If you want to write this down, raise this. That, that's, I think, saying this, praise is a lifestyle, not a life circumstance. Praise is a lifestyle, not a life circumstance. Well, like the key word in that phrase, he, listen to what he says, give thanks what? In everything. He doesn't say for you don't have to give thanks for your circumstances, but in circumstances, you can still choose to give thanks. God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I know you're sovereign. I know you're good. I know you're all-powerful. So even in the situation that I can't wrap my mind around, I still give praise because I trust you. There's passages like Romans 8.28 that should encourage us, inspire us, says that we know that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. And they are the people called by God because that was his plan. I don't understand why at nine years old my brother died in a car crash. I don't understand it. I still can't wrap my mind around it. But I still don't know my God's good, and I still trust him that he has plans. Even in my finite mind, I can't unwrap my mind around an infinite God. I don't understand why my freshman year of high school, my best friend and me split different ways, and I, mean, I miss that relationship stuff. But you know what? I understand that God is good, and God still works those things for the good of all things. I don't understand why I faithfully have done stuff for the Lord, and God hasn't blessed me and given me what I thought I wanted that moment. But you know what? I still can choose to praise God and still give worship to God because my God is good. I can trust him. And so you find ways to praise in all circumstances, in all situations. My kids, I love them to death, but they've taken after their daddy. We get in the car first thing. How was school? Terrible. I'm like, okay. And so we have to have a new way we do it. I said, all right. We get in the car. I said, all right, before you say anything else, tell me two things you liked about school today. Well, I didn't. No, no, no. We're stopping right there. What are two things that you liked about school today? We have to find ways to speak live. And suddenly we start talking about that. And guess what? The whole conversation goes a different situation. We start talking about how awesome the Lord was, how awesome things going on. I remember the first week of school, I was praying for my kids, and I said, tell me two things, and my kids began to tell me stuff. And I almost began to cry during the car. I was like, guys, you guys don't know this. I pray specifically for you that today. And we got to have a whole conversation with the Lord. Now, listen, I'm not pal I don't do that every day. Trust me. I fail miserably all the time. It's amazing what happens in that. You might say, well, how can I possibly do this? Well, look what it says. It says this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do we do it? Because our faith, our hope, our joy is in our salvation not in our circumstances. My, my confidence comes in my salvation, not my circumstances. Like through salvation, it's through our place, our stature with God. God doesn't change. Nothing dwindles with it. When you place faith in your circumstances, when you place faith in your blessings, your faith will be sporadic. Your love for God will be sporadic. When you place faith in the God, when you place faith in the unchanging God, it never changes. I've asked my two Vanna Whites to come up here and help me... Uh, 
help me uh, with the illustration. Let me get on the other side of you guys. I'm not, I'm not jump roping. This is not going to be pretty if I do that. All right. You got two ropes in here. Imagine this. Imagine this is a, a symbolic gesture of your thanks and giving in the Lord, your praise. But pretend this white one represents your circumstances, your blessings in life, and this one represents God. Now, just real quick, listen. If your thanks, if your giving, if your praise is wrapped into your circumstances and wrapped into the blessings, what's going on in your life? What's going to happen? When things are going well, man, God, you get all the praise. You get all the worship. Man, you get all. But guess what happens when 2020 hits? Right back down here, right? Suddenly it's like, well, maybe not right now, maybe later, maybe it won't change. But you know what? Things are going good. I suddenly get a raise at work. Man, God, you are good. Look how awesome you are. You know what? They took the raise away from me. Man, it's back gone again. And suddenly, guess what? Your worship and your praise and your thanks and your giving are sporadic as all get out. But, but when you place your faith, when you place your trust, not in the blessings of God, but God himself, guess what? Your thanks and giving don't change. It doesn't matter what happens in your life. You hit highs, you hit lows. Your consistent praise, your consistent giving never changes. Your amount may change at times. You may struggle at times. But listen, at the end of the day, you come to play and say, you know what? It, it doesn't matter what happens in my life because God never changes. And if God never changes, listen, my, 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 my gratitude never changes. My generosity never changes because my God never changes. Now, now, now just real quick, let me ask you this. Which one of these two illustrate your praise? illustrate your giving. Is it sporadic? Guys, appreciate it. You guys, give them a round of applause for the two beautiful men up here. They said as long as I don't have to talk, they'll come up, so. Guys, let me, let me repeat the big idea. Thanks and giving shouldn't change because our God doesn't change. How, how, did, Job, how did Job get through that? Because his eyes were fixed on God. He, he didn't pretend like he didn't lose everything. But my joy is in the Lord. My praise is in the Lord. My worship is in the Lord. Like, can we just, can we just have some real talk real quick? Like, like, if we were to go back and look at some of the metrics of this church, what do we see? We, we see attendance that's sporadic as all get out. We see worship services that some week are on fire and some say that they're completely dead. And I'm thinking, is anybody alive in this room? You look at our tithes and offerings, can I tell you, it, it is all over the place. This is not a pitch, a plea to give more money to the church. It's a pitch and plea that everyone starts contributing into the kingdom work of God and be a part of it. Here in a few weeks, I'm going to tell you about just statistical, how many people, how much percent of our church is actually contributing. Uh, it's not about how much you give. It's the fact that you are giving. Why? Because my Lord is consistent, and I, I, he does not change. And so it's a metric to show what's going on inside the heart, the spiritual condition of our church. We have people that I don't even know where they are anymore. And some of it's because we come once every eight weeks, and it's so sporadic. It's like, man, where is your love for the Lord? Well, I got this, I got this, I got this. You might look at me and say, well, Eric, man, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how difficult it is. I agree. I don't know, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that or play that down. But my rebuttal to you is this, is maybe you don't know my God. Well, like maybe you've misplaced your faith. And I don't say this in, in a voice of criticism. I, I, I say this as a voice of guilt in my own sense up here. My bitterness with the Lord has ran rampant throughout this next past couple of years. Man, God, what's going on? Like, man, where are you? My worship is all over the place. My giving, my generosity is all over the place. And my Lord's like convicting me, like, Eric, listen, you, you fixed your eyes on the circumstance of your life. You haven't fixed your eyes on the author of life. 
And, and so today, there's a conviction, there's a challenge for our church to start worshiping the Lord, start thanking the Lord, start giving to the Lord. Because if you don't wrap yourself around those things, listen, your, your eyes are fixated on the wrong thing, and your life will seem chaotic everywhere you go. And so I'm going to pray that God stirs your heart back in that direction, that, that your eyes would now be fixed on the right thing. Can I tell you, the greatest witness you can have today is if your life is troublesome right now and you're going through difficulties and you still worship the Lord, there is no greater witness you're going to have for the Lord because it shows God that, listen, it's not about the things, it's about God. The greatest witness I ever remember back at College Heights was a lady named Pat Jenkins who found out she had cancer. And we were, we were praying for her, and we're praying for this, and we said, Pat, can we pray for deliverance? She goes, just pray for the Lord's will. And I said, how can you do that? She says, listen. She goes, it might be God's will for me to live, but it might be God's will for me to die well. And if I can bring more glory to God through that, then I want to live that to the fullest and give it praise. And man, I was convicted. I'm like, if I was in your shoes, I'd be saying, God, take it. I can't do this. And so with your head bowed, your eyes closed, and the band comes up, I'm just going to pray for you and ask God just to uh, point your heart back in the right direction. Maybe today for some of you, your, your first step is, is through salvation. Maybe you've never come and placed your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. We have those elders that are up here that will be available and love nothing more to walk you through what it means to place your hope and, fi and fix your eyes on that thing, on Jesus Christ and sacrifice he made for you. For some of you, your, your first step here in a second, we're going to sing, might be just to stand and raise your hand. It don't matter how you feel, just to pour yourself out to the Lord. Maybe you need to come up to the front to the kneelers and you pray, God, listen, this is outside of my comfort zone, but you're worthy of it. Maybe it's at your seat. Maybe it's in the car right home. Maybe for some of you, it's the first time giving something to the church and being a part of it. Not because we need money, but because you trust the Lord and you want to worship him. But you need to take that first step. So I'm going to pray and you respond. Our elders will be available if they can help you in any way. Father God, I love you. I praise you. God, forgive me for where my, my life gets off on chasing the rabbit of my circumstances. And God, I joke about it with, with the church here, but there's a truth and honesty that I, I'm, I'm too pessimistic for my own good, for, for your good. And God, forgive me of that. I pray that I can find ways to praise you, and I, I constantly fix my eyes on that thing. God, I pray every single Sunday, every single day that people are up here. God, I pray I can give praise to you because you're worthy of it. And God, I pray prepare my heart right now, God. I'm asking personally, prepare my heart for the hardships in life that I can be strong and courageous for you and be bold in my, my witness to you. God, allow me and Emily to step up and do more than we need to in our giving and our, in our, our praise for you at home. Let's be a witness to our kids. God, I pray your light would shine brightest in my life in the dark world. God, I love you for this church. I love you for who you are. Thank you for your truth. Guide us into your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You stand. Let's worship. If you need to respond, one of our elders will be right here. You come.